Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how Trump has done something genuinely new as president. He specializes in creating uncertainty. Nomi Prinz will talk about the economic consequences for us and for our future. Also, Trump will probably be gone after 2020, but Brett Kavanaugh could be with us for decades. Harold Meyerson has an update on the campaign to stop Trump's Supreme Court nominee and the Democrats who threatened to betray everything. But first, the news media in the age of Trump. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, brother. Well, several of my friends say we are now in a new golden age of journalism because there is so much to uncover and report about Donald Trump and and the other horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, as you call them, because the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other places, including The Nation, have many talented and accomplished people writing great stuff about crimes in high places. We're in a new golden age of journalism. And yet, you have just published a piece at thenation.com headlined, These Are the Worst of Times for American Journalism. Uh, Why do you think that? Well, suggesting that this is a golden age for for journalism would be like standing in a torrential rainstorm saying, wow, we finally got some, we got a little bit of water here. You know, it's... it's, (laughs) The fact of the matter is, yeah, there is a there's a lot to report on. There's there's a million things to to do, but we don't have enough people to do it, and we're not paying enough people to do it. In fact, by any measure, any reasonable measure, we are we are without the adequate core of journalists that's needed to to cover our international, national, state, and local public affairs. And as such, we're not getting anywhere near the flow of information we need as citizens to govern ourselves. In fact, we are in the midst of a radical period 
of calling out newsrooms, laying people off, shutting down publications. And this isn't just in, you know, sort of what's referred to as legacy media or traditional media, newspapers, radio stations, television stations. This is online as well. I mean, the studies from from old major centers that look at, at where things stand right now will tell you that while there are deep cuts going on in, in newspaper newsrooms, there have also been deep cuts going on in online newsrooms. So this is no golden age. It's a, it's a fantasy. And, and frankly, I'm really upset with the journalists who continue to perpetuate that fantasy because while I do understand in the face of Donald Trump a desire to, to be strong and to, to stand up with everything you've got, we have to acknowledge that the corporations, the hedge fund managers, the billionaires that own so much of our media are kicking journalism to the curb. They are, they are diminishing journalism. They are not advancing it. Well, the, the immediate example that, that sort of exemplifies everything you're talking about is the New York Daily News. Tell us about what its significance has been and what's happened there in the last few days. Uh, the New York Daily News is a century-old paper that uh, at one time, mid-century, in the 20th century, was the largest circulation newspaper in the United States of America, not just in New York City, but the largest circulation in the country. It is historically an incredibly vibrant, incredibly important newspaper. Now, it doesn't always have the national reach of a New York Times or a Washington Post. It was historically the paper of New York City, particularly the paper of working class people who lived in the boroughs of that city. Uh, Until relatively recently, it continued to be the paper that won Pulitzer Prizes uh, because it broke stories that, that a lot of other media didn't pay attention to, stories of corruption, stories of struggle, stories of wealth and poverty. It's notable that in our media, you're, you're, we're just going to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's now covered a great deal by our media. But when she was running her campaign for Congress, if you looked in New York newspapers for serious coverage of her, you found a lot more in the Daily News on, mm. on many given days than you did in the rest of the media. And this newspaper just gutted its newsroom. Tronk, the corporation, the, you know, this investment firm, basically, that owns uh, the Daily News and a number of other papers around the U.S., uh, uh, including Chicago Tribune, in fact, had control for quite a while of the L.A. Times. Yeah. Uh, Tronk just gutted out its newsroom. Uh, you're talking about loss of, of, it looks like, I mean, the numbers are still, you, know, you, can, you can debate where it's at, but roughly half of the people there. Mm. And you understand, this newsroom had already been gutted. In, in the piece I wrote, I wrote, I used numbers from the past that showed, you know, how many hundreds of reporters they have. Now you measured in the small dozens. Uh, they can't cover New York with that. Uh, well, they can't cover the national politics, where they historically were a very major player. And the thing is, the New York Daily News is in New York. Yeah, It is in the media center. It's a place we talk about across this country. I can give you the same story in city after city. They're gutting out the newsrooms. They are laying people off. They are shutting publications down. They are turning the lights out. 
And as they do so, they are doing every bit as much damage to journalism as Donald Trump does with his rants. Let me just say a few words about Tronc, the corporation that owns the Daily News and lots of other uh, newspapers. Uh, Tronc used to be started out as the Tribune Company after the legendary Chicago newspaper, the Chicago Tribune. They changed their name to Tronc. Tronc is T-R-O-N-C. It's an acronym that means Tribune Online Content. You will note that that name says nothing about news or reporting or journalism. Everything is just content, and people like you and me are just content providers. It's a completely different conception of, of what, what media are. Well, it's also the stupidest name in history. Yes, there's right? that I mean, too. It, it's just—it's an absurd, dumb name. Which I understand they're thinking about changing, and I, I give them credit for that. But you see, this is this is what happens when you have people who are interested in branding and marketing yeah. and making money—nothing but making money—taking over newsrooms. And remember, this is not about old media versus new media. The fact of the matter is that the investor class, the corporate class, the hedge fund managers, the billionaires who take over publications, by and large, do so to try and make money off them. But they don't want to make money the way that owners of publications, frankly, owners of newspapers, TV stations, and, and even some of the initial online projects expect to do so, which is that you make a little bit of money because you understand what you're doing as a public trust. Maybe even you make a lot of money if it gets big, but you don't diminish journalism down to a level where you put the name of a city, you put the name of a state on your publication, but you cannot possibly cover that city or that state because you do not invest enough money in it to do the job. And remember, we are talking about profitable corporation. Yeah. You're talking about groups that make money, but because they're not making enough money, they kick journalism to the curb. Yeah. You know, there's this recent phenomenon of the saviors, billionaires coming to save, to rescue some of the big papers. The Washington Post now is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the you know top five billionaires of the world. The L.A. Times has just been bought by a local billionaire named Patrick Soon-Shong, kind of a mystery man as far as journalism is concerned. He's never had anything to do with newspapers or journalism, and, you know, we're hoping. We're hoping for the best. He's got to be better than, than Tronk was. What do you think of the turn towards billionaire saviors who we hope are liberals? <laughs> Look, I'd, I'd settle for moderates yeah, okay. uh, um, or, or just reasonable people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is, I think even a reasonable conservative uh, could still run a newspaper that, that, you know, if you had any sense of duty, any sense of responsibility, could cover a community. It's not about ideology. There are two problems here. Number one, there aren't enough billionaires. <laughs> okay? And I've never, ever said that before, and I will never say it again. You heard but it here, folks. In this case, there are, there are not enough billionaires to save all the publications in America and all the online newsrooms and all the broadcast outlets and make them what they should be. Most billionaires don't even care. So you have some people with a little bit of ego, like a Bezos. And, and you know, look, they may do a decent job for a time, but what if they lose interest? 
And then here's the, the bottom line. Even if there were enough billionaires, two big problems. Number one, you fall into the terrible trap that people fell into in Great Britain with the monarchy, where you'd say, well, you know, maybe we'll have a good king, right? <laughs> you know, but that's why you end up with a good king, you know, Bill, and a bad king, Steve. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, waiting for a good king to come along is dysfunctional. And it, it's foolish. And, and it leaves you disempowered. You, ought, you oughtn't have a king. We, we fought a revolution around <laughs> now, that issue. Now that you mention it. Secondly, I don't know about you, John. You, you can say your piece here. But it's my view that the billionaire class may have some interests of its own. Yeah, which, which I think. Which might not. Yeah. yeah. It might not be parallel to that of everybody else. Yeah, good point. I just want to underline one of your big points. We're concerned about the terrible cuts in newsrooms, not just in coverage of the crimes of Donald Trump, but the crimes of the state legislatures, the lobbyists for the city council, the lobbyists for the zoning board. All of that really matters in cities and counties and states. And a lot of good newspapers used to try to cover that stuff. Now it's almost impossible. Well, yeah, we have state houses. I go around the country, state houses across this country. People, you know, all, they all talk about, oh, we used to have this many reporters here. There used to be a dozen people here, 20 people. You know, now we've got, you know, and I can knock a golf ball around the room because it's empty or pretty close to empty. And this is the same with city halls. Beats across this country, basic coverage of our cities, our counties, uh, our school boards is diminished at a dramatic level. And this is not something that was unpredictable, by the way. Ben Bigdickian wrote 20 years ago, in yeah. one of the last editions of his yeah. book, The Media Monopoly. He said, you know, as you go to a digital future, and we are, this is where we're at, you know, people are going to think everything is free, and that's understandable. But also, you're just going to have all these transitions, advertising moving away from the traditional publication. So the ability to make huge amounts of money without even trying almost would be diminished that you're going to see a radical diminution of local coverage. As you see a radical diminution of local coverage, you will rapidly see a change of your local, state, and national politics because as people get less information from journalism, they end up getting more and more information from spin, from TV ads, from people like Trump who just know how to use social media and things like that very, very well. And you end up creating a gap that power, particularly economic power, is especially well-positioned to exploit. And so we have a crisis right now. We have a crisis where too much of our information is coming from self-interested elites and too little from folks who, as bad as they've been over the years, and remember, I'm a media critic. I've been a critic for a very long time of yes. our, our media system. As bad as it is, at least tried, and yeah. at least felt some sense of duty, some sense of responsibility, and, and frankly, some sense of possibility. And, you know, these people are still out there, John. There are people working their fingers to the bone trying to, to cover it, but you can't do the job when you're understaffed. And so we have to, as a society, start to think about dramatic new approaches to how we fund journalism. We can't just wait for a billionaire to show up. And, and we have to start doing what countries around the world do. You know, it's funny. When we talk about countries around the world, uh, most progressives are very, very comfortable with the idea that a single-payer Medicare for all health care system is the way to deal with health care. 
that tuition-free college is a great way to deal with education, higher education. Well, one lesson that we can take from countries around the world is everybody else massively subsidizes public broadcasting and community broadcasting. And in countries around the world, there is strong support via all sorts of tax structures and things to make sure that it is easy for a lot of media to exist. Now, that doesn't mean that all the pathologies and problems that the United States is experiencing aren't being seen in other countries. There's no question. Other countries are struggling with these issues as well. But the degeneration of journalism that we have seen in the United States because of the cuts really is dramatic. And it does stand out from countries like Germany or from the Scandinavian countries with which we should want to compare ourselves. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thanks, John. Always great to have you on the show. Pleasure. Now it's time to talk about politics. Trump will probably be gone after 2020, but Brett Kavanaugh could be with us for decades for an update on the campaign to stop Trump's Supreme Court nominee and on the Democrats who threatened to betray everything. We turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the New York Times page one reports that, quote, Republicans everywhere are confronting an ominous political environment, a Democratic opposition rippling with energy, and a president on their own side who is prone to divisive outbursts, close quote. Right now, we are thinking more about the Senate. It's much more important for the Democrats right now to regain control of the Senate than the House, because, of course, the Senate is where Trump's Supreme Court nominees are confirmed or rejected. Right now, we have Brett Kavanaugh. Next year, it could be a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now she's 85. Or Stephen Breyer. He's 79. The Senate lineup famously is 50 to 49. How are things looking for the Democratic candidates in the Senate? Uh, it's not clear. I think you would have to say that uh, Democrats are favored to pick up seats in Arizona and Nevada. That would get them to 51. And they have a, uh, a decent chance in Tennessee, where the former Democratic governor, Phil Bredesen, is uh, strong and is polling well. Uh, they have an outside shot in Texas, where uh, Beto O'Rourke is, is contesting the execrable Ted Cruz. Yes. That's, that's not easy to say. So, you know, I would say too likely, too iffy but possible. And then there are a few endangered Democrats. Surprisingly, some of them in, uh, tra- in states where Trump ran strong uh, are polling pretty well, most notably Joe Manchin in West Virginia, which is the state that Trump carried by his largest margin. There are some other Democrats who are in states uh, that Trump also carried who are uh, going to be in tighter races. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp in South Dakota, Joe Donnelly in uh, Indiana, and uh, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, though McCaskill, I think, is ahead in some polling. And then there's the possibility that uh, the rather lackluster Bill Nelson will not be able to hold on to his seat in, in Florida, where he's being opposed by the not lackluster but generally terrible uh, outgoing Republican Governor Rick Scott. So 
with all of those races in play, it's very hard to say. It's very hard to say who who will uh, emerge in control of the Senate. Uh, the House looks clearly more like it's going Democratic than, than the Senate is. The Senate is just a big question mark. And we're assuming here that if the Democrats were to get to uh, 51 in the Senate, that they would be able to defeat the Kavanaugh nomination. But let us remember that three Democrats voted to confirm Gorsuch. Their names have already been mentioned. Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Joe Donnelly from Indiana. And Joe Manchin broke ranks with the Democrats. He's the only Democrat to have met with Kavanaugh. How bad is that for our future plans? Well, it's not good. And keep in mind, Mitch McConnell's plan, of course, is to bring the Kavanaugh uh, nomination to a vote before the November election. So uh, to dispose of it so quickly that uh, the outcome of the elections obviously can have no possible effect on senators' votes, except the fear of, of defeat could have an effect on the above three, Manchin, Donnelly, and, uh, and Heitkamp. People say this, you know, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, has a dilemma. Uh, if he uh, wants to uh, get to that majority, he may have to uh, have people like Donnelly, Manchin, and Heitkamp hold on to their seats by voting for the confirmation of Kavanaugh. Of course, two things. One, you know, there's no guarantee that that is a uh, a sure ticket to winning re-election. Uh, that's, yeah. that's point one. Yeah. Point two, you can lose a Senate seat and gain it back in six years. When you lose the Supreme Court for 30 years, the consequences to the nation uh, are a hell of a lot more serious than uh, who uh, controls the Senate for the next two years until the next uh, election. Absolutely. Critical, a, a critical point. If you're not going to use your political power to oppose a bad Supreme Court nominee, what is it for? It's not even just a bad Supreme Court nominee. It's really giving control of the court for a minimum of a couple decades to a far right that has shown itself determined to undermine pretty much every decent piece of legislation that transformed the nation for the better in the 1960s and the 1930s. I mean, it's, it's, it's not even simply confirming a bad justice. It's, it's really letting uh, right-wingers do serious damage to the United States. Well, some say the Kavanaugh nomination is more likely to help Republicans in the midterm than Democrats. The argument here is... Both sides get fired up about this, but the Democrats are already totally fired up, and the Republicans are not fired up, not really fired up at all, but they do understand that the Supreme Court is much more important than Trump. So they are more likely to turn out around the Supreme Court nominee than Democrats are, since Democrats will already be turning out. What do you think of that argument? I think there's something to that. I, I, I think the uh, intensity gap, as it is called, yes. will still favor the Democrats because Trump, every every waking moment, gives Democrats more to feel <laughs> intensely about. Uh, you know, so, but I mean, you know, this is clearly an electoral ploy by the Republicans, and it's, it's, it's very much, it's as much a ploy by Mitch McConnell who wants to hold on to the Senate 
as it is uh, employed by Donald Trump. How about this possibility? The Russiagate intersection with the Kavanaugh hearings. The special counsel, Robert Mueller, wants to interview Trump about Russian interference in the 2016 election. It looks like Trump is going to refuse to do that. Mueller's next move is to subpoena Trump to appear before the grand jury. Trump's lawyers have made it clear that they think that's improper and they will appeal such a subpoena all the way to the Supreme Court. This could be going on while the Senate is considering Kavanaugh. So if the Senate were to confirm Kavanaugh, he might rule on the case of United States versus Trump. This could easily overshadow the hearings and become a huge issue for the Democrats. Yes, it could. And uh, it it could uh, actually, I think, swing the uh, confirmation against Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh has been clear that he places great emphasis on executive privilege, on on the need for presidents not to be subjected to uh, uh, not just criminal charges, but uh, investigation. You know, he's done a 180 since he worked for Kenneth Starr and uh, his push against Bill Clinton. But if, you know, he, he's coming up for a vote and going into hearings at a time when it's clear this will come before the Supreme Court, I mean, there's, there's, there's two issues here. One is, will he recuse himself, uh, given that he was appointed by Trump, on any vote of uh, whether Trump uh, can avoid a subpoena and not comply. And uh, two, um, given his record in favor of letting the president do what he may without uh, a threat of investigation, both of those, I think, not only would give uh, the above-mentioned gang of three, Manchin, Heitkamp, and uh, Donnelly, Donnelly, uh, good cause to vote no, but I think also would be the one kind of thing that just might uh, convince someone like Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, the only two somewhat moderate Republicans in the, uh, uh, in the Senate, uh, to vote no as well. It, it is such a, a, a clear conflict of interest, and, and it's, it's, it's giving Trump a get-out-of-jail-free pass, essentially. Uh, and that really would transform the substance of uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and the Kavanaugh vote. Different topic. At the American Prospect website, prospect.org, I read, uh, quote, I will be amazed if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee in 2020. The water around him is rising fast, and he is likely to be long gone by 2020, either via impeachment or resignation in a deal that spares him prosecution, close quote. wonder if you have any comment. Yeah, that was by my, uh, my partner in crime here, Bob Kuttner. You know, I think Bob is probably the best writer in America on political economy. Uh, so uh, that said, uh, less so on politics per se. If there is a smoking gun on Trump that compels the Republicans to turn against him, that is one thing. If there's not, you know, I mean, 90% of the Republican Party rank and file still stands with him, and that is a powerful impediment to uh, Republicans in Congress doing anything to get rid of the guy. And I don't see Trump resigning. I mean, I don't think that's in his nature. So I'm going on the assumption that Trump will be the nominee in 2020, uh, and I think an eminently defeatable one at that. Finally, something completely 
different. We record our show in Los Angeles, and we're very preoccupied this week with California's monster forest fires up north, the largest fires in the history of California. Over the weekend, Trump tweeted that California's big fires are, quote, being magnified and made so much worse by the bad environmental laws must tree clear to stop fire spreading, close quote. I know you're not exactly an expert on on forest fires, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about Trump's tweet. Yeah, I mean, he wants to uh, get rid of uh, trees, which have been uh, promiscuously permitted to grow by California's environmental (laughs) policy. Uh, He wants to get rid of the trees so that fires won't get rid of trees. I mean, this is sort of like saying uh, you want to get rid of, uh, of, of rivers to avoid floods. It rather ignores the whole issue of uh, climate change, which is so clearly uh, a huge factor, if not the, the single, uh, probably the single major factor in why uh, cities are getting inundated by hurricanes while uh, a third of California is burning down why they're getting uh, uh, tropical temperatures in northern Sweden, why it was 85 degrees in Fairbanks, Alaska uh, last week. I mean, it, this, this is really getting hard to ignore. I am reminded of a famous quote from Ronald Reagan back when he was running for governor in California. And again, uh, too much environmental preservation for his for his preference. And so he was famously quoted as saying, if you've seen one redwood, you've seen them all. And, uh, you know, Trump wants to plow that redwood uh, down. Uh, so, uh, God forbid, uh, we, we, we don't have to see it. Harold Meyerson, he can see the forest for the trees. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks very much. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Next up, how Trump is leading us towards economic chaos. For that, we turn to Nomi Prinz. She's the author of six books, most recently, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rig the World. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, Mother Jones, The Guardian, Tom Dispatch, and The Nation. Nomi Prinz, welcome. Thank you. Well, Trump has done something genuinely new as president. He specializes in creating uncertainty. Trump's method is to keep everyone, his cabinet, the media, politicians and experts, off guard. He makes sure that nobody will be able to take their eyes off of him and his tweets. Presidents before him have all pretty much tried to avoid uncertainty because the economic markets really want predictability. And uncertainty threatens to bring disorder and decline and maybe even chaos or entropy. You have a new piece at The Nation analyzing the threat Trump poses to the economy. I thought your number one example of his creating uncertainty would be the tariff wars, but that is not at the top of your list. The top of your list is continuous banking deregulation. Please explain. Well, um, really, all of the five things I talk about are are kind of codependent um, to to some extent. The the reason I I chose banking deregulation is because it is a little bit in the background to trade wars right now. Um, One of the things that Trump campaigned on, or at least what was in the Republican platform vis-a-vis his people, um, was that he would reinstate a modern version of the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. The reason for that also... Um, gelled well with his voters, his supporters, you know, saying that, you know, he will take on the, the 
higher echelons of Wall Street against Hillary Clinton, who's friends with them, etc. And, and, and that played very well. Of course, when he got to office, he stopped talking about that. But moreover, and I talk about this in the piece, um, his Treasury Secretary, who uh, was a former Goldman partner and was very much involved in utilizing government support to basically raid a bank, IndyMac, in uh, in California, um, based in Pasadena, for its its mortgage portfolio and proceed to foreclose on numerous homes he didn't have to foreclose upon with a consortium of other uh, hedge fund billionaires. And, and effectively, um, in his post as Treasury Secretary, along with the current head of the Federal Reserve, who had been a number two under Janet Yellen, um, but who was appointed head of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, who's from the private sector as well, um, are big proponents of deregulation. That means not remotely reinstating Glass-Steagall in any capacity um, and, and moving further to actually reduce the, the constraints of even reporting what big banks or medium-sized banks would do in the case of an emergency and other crisis situation, um, which would render them more able to navigate it themselves without extra government help, notwithstanding the fact they've had Federal Reserve help for a decade. Um, and so all of this is in the backdrop, and that creates like a, um, a growth of risk. It, it, it creates the, the potential of more looming risk on the financial markets and therefore on um, the real economy and real people because banks aren't actually more healthy. They're, they're showing record profits, um, but they're also subsidized by, by Federal Reserve and other platforms. And deregulating them further um, only means that to the extent they're actually show their lack of true health on their own um, could culminate also with additional types of transactions and, and practices that, that, that could again fall upon the economy. Not that they've stopped along the way, you know, look at Wells Fargo, but, but there's certainly, um, that, that's, that's a looming problem that I think doesn't get enough attention now because of all the other things <laughs> that Trump does that, that get so much more attention. Well, one of the other things that people do know a lot about and are very worried about is the uncertainty around auto industry tariffs. Trump recently threatened a 25% tariffs on autos and auto parts from the European Union, Canada, and Mexico. Tell us about that. Right. So this, this again gets to the core of his um, going back on his own campaign promises to his own uh, constituent of, of, of major supporters, some of which were workers in, in the auto industries throughout the country, um, where he basically promised to protect them and support them and, and, and you know and put them um, ahead of his agenda and so forth. And so to turn around and even threaten um, and, and even the threat of a lot of these tariffs has, has a, a major impact on things like hiring and things like production quotas and um, even investment in new technology for cars and all sorts of things that aren't even um, really in, in the full atmosphere yet merely because of threats. But when you start to go forward from threats to tariffs um, on auto, autos from you know, Canada, Mexico, um, Europe, and so forth, you're, you're not actually just threatening those countries relative to somehow boosting up U.S. production or, or even U.S. purchases of, of cars in the U.S. The reality is these, these, you know, if you look at Germany, for example, they have um, you know, numerous car manufacturing companies in the United States that yes. collectively um, employ 120,000 uh, people just, just for German cars. And, you know, so it goes on to Scandinavian cars and so forth. So you, you take a look at 
the fact that the auto industry itself has been very fearful. Um, the auto the auto industry he supposedly will be protecting with these tariffs, right, has been very um, fearful of them going through because they would lose jobs in the U.S. Um, in addition to losing sales, you know, because and in addition to losing, um, you know, potential sales that they've already forecast to have in, in the near future. They do these forecasts of what they expect to to sell and, and, and based on that, make projections of their businesses and so forth going forward. Um, all of that becomes in flux with tariffs or the threat of tariffs. And these are real jobs. These are This is real um, consumer additional costs. Um, and, and this is real just, again, instability. I talk about it as entropy, um, a physics term. But basically, um, that's what, whether he invokes tariffs or talks about them, instills. The next thing on your list of Trump uh, economic policies that are taking us towards chaos and entropy is Trump's tax cuts. Of course, Trump's argument is that tax cuts stimulate the economy. What's the story there? There, there, there has been on the, on the standpoint of corporate balance sheets because they got the lion's share of these tax cuts. Um, a propensity to use that money, um, and they were not secretive about this, the CEOs of SP500, um, major corporations based in the United States, about using that tax cut to buy their own share. So, so one of the things that has been a result of his tax cuts has been um, sort of this extra lift or, or boost or something to the stock market because the companies are effectively using the money that they, they're saving um, and not paying in taxes to the U.S. government to basically buy their own shares and create more, um, you know, a financial incentive to their shareholders and, and to their CEOs who tend to get paid in shares or options of their own shares um, of the stock in their own companies. And as a result of that, and again, this is no secret. This, this, is, this is what they say. In fact, the head of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the States, um, Jamie Dimon actually called Trump's tax cuts um, QE4, quantitative easing 4, which was basically the, the, the fourth kind of level of a subsidy um, for the market. And, and, and he meant that, and, and, and that was true. And so if you're putting the money into the market, you're not putting it into wages, you're not putting it into necessarily jobs, especially with this other stuff going on, and, and you're also not putting it into expansion, you're not necessarily putting it into long-term, not putting it into long-term growth, because you take what you get up front, and then you put it into the market that day or that week or in your calendar for that quarter, or however it is you, you decide to allocate that money into your own shares, um, and you execute on that basis. It's a lot easier to buy shares and therefore push them up than to you know open a plant. I mean, it's, it's just a simpler way um, of making money for, for shareholders. So, so therefore, those tax cuts ultimately um, create this, this upward surge in, in the stock market or maintenance of the stock market where it is and don't necessarily translate into and haven't translated into wages. In fact, I think I mentioned this in the piece that wages during the time that the uh, stock market, that the corporate taxes have been in existence um, at this, at this cut level um, have actually declined by, by about 1.8%. So, so in fact, it's gone a little bit in the opposite direction already. You've only got a couple minutes left here. Uh, you say that all these things uh Together, the banking deregulation, the uncertainty around tariffs, the tax cuts tend to move the economy away from growth and towards what you call entropy. What do you mean by entropy? Entropy is, is, is basically a state of uncertainty, of, of perpetual uncertainty or, or a trend towards um, either decline or a trend towards more uncertainty. And, and so what happens is um, when all of these uh, 
actions are operating or or, or, or under threat to be operating around the same time um, is that the real economy tends to tends to choke or or tends to just operate under uncertainty, um, which isn't the best way to sustain growth or, or sustain um, you know real infrastructure development or, or or any any sort of thing like that. And so that's where all of this kind of comes together. All, all these factors come together. Um, and entropy is really how Trump operates anyway, which is he tends to instill um, as much confusion. Um, as, as an operating principle um, into the world at, at, you know, at any point in time. Um, and and the, the economy and, and people who make up that economy, companies that are run by these people, workers that work for them, um, all therefore get caught in that crossfire. Nomi Prinz, her article about how Trump policies are leading us towards economic entropy appears at Tom Dispatch and TheNation.com. Nomi, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much. Finally, how do so many Samoans make it in the NFL? That's the topic of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine Sports Editor. The history of American Samoa and the importance of football to the islands. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.